The Doctor is in. Rick Wilton, Dr. HQ, is next on Baseball HQ Radio. by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a belt. Well, field. Way back. Blue Jays win it. The Blue Jays are Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of May the 5th, show number 16 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host. And in addition to Rick Wilton, Dr. HQ from BaseballHQ.com, we'll have our regular contributors from the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League analyst is columnist Matt Beagle. Also our Market Pulse commentator this week, talking about focusing on the 85% of the season that's left. In our regular Minor League Minute, Rob Gordon looks at Reds' left-handed pitching prospect Tony Singrani. And in his Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about trading Albert Pujols. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We've had a terrible injury for one of the game's greats. We've got to talk some baseball. And to open our show, as always, our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle on deck with players from the American League. But leading off, it's the National League and our old friend Harold Nick. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Let's start by talking about one of the players a lot of people were looking at in preseason for a bounce-back year. David Wright, the third baseman of the New York Mets, has had a pretty respectable April. He has indeed. I mean, hitting close to 400, a, a real uh, a real response uh, to a down year last season. And the question, of course, is can he keep it up? And if we look at what Wright's been doing so far, there are a couple of things that have driven his, his high batting average, and they're... They're things that we would normally look at and say, all right, so these things are going to come down. A 44% hit rate, which, of course, he can't keep up. An 84% contact rate, which is uh, almost 10 points higher than he had a year ago. But if you look at those closely, that 44% hit rate is not completely out of line. I mean, he had a 40% hit rate for the whole season in 2009, a 35% hit rate in 2010. So, yes, that, that hit rate's going to come down, but maybe not as far as we might expect it to. Same with the contact rate. I mean, here's a guy who used to have contact rates above 80%, 81% in 2008, and the last three years has been down. So contact rate, again, is bouncing back and maybe getting a little bit of good luck after having some uh, some, some bad luck with cut with hit rate and contact rates, uh, you know, the last couple of seasons. So, yes, that batting average is going to come down some, but uh, maybe not as far as we want it to. The other thing to look at is his line drive rate, a 29% line drive rate, and, of course, we say he can't keep that up. But if we look back to 2008-2009, 26% line drive rates in both of those seasons. So, again, line drive rate's going to come down, but probably not as much as uh, as some folks might expect it to. Uh, 
So, uh, yes, a, a start fueled by some good luck for David Wright, but uh, in fact, he could keep doing a lot of the things he's doing. His XBA is 317. Uh, he might approach another 300 season. Yeah, he certainly could. Uh, the contact rate is, Nick, the first thing I look at when I'm assessing a hitter. I want to know that he's not striking out a lot. And uh, 84% contact rate, you know, to describe it as uh, a matter of luck, I think, is maybe um, not quite accurate i wonder if it's it's really a skill to put the bat on the ball and as you said in in past years david wright certainly displayed that skill with a with a 80 percent plus contact rate and his hit rate at 44 percent for people who are more familiar with batting average and balls and play it's the same thing it's a 440 babip or a 44 percent hit rate it amounts to the same thing that is going to come down there's almost no doubt about that because that line drive rate is so high but as you, again, as you said, 2009, 40%, and he's been a, you know, that's not that far off for a full season. So David Wright has shown these kind of skills in the past. He's shown this kind of ability in the past. I guess the, really the question is going to be, can he stay healthy? Well, I think that's, that's a good question. You know, the other thing to look at right now, too, is his walk rate is close to 20%. Uh, and that's, that's a bit high for David Wright. Probably that will come down some, too. But again, we're looking at a guy whose walk rates have been around 12, 13% consistently. Uh, and that goes along with that good contact rate. So he seems to be having a good eye, uh, making good contact. You're right. Can he stay healthy? That's the real question. But he's only 29 years old, uh, so not an old player. Maybe not. Uh, maybe maybe the health issues uh, will, will go away for a season, and he'll be able to stay there out in the field the entire year. And they have cost him in the past, even though he had a lot of at-bats. He played hurt a lot. And uh, if he's got his health underneath him, He's a good player, and, and he's not that old, as you mentioned. Gosh, I think David Wright could be for real, and if there's a sell-high guy in your league who wants to cash in on David Wright thinking the sky's going to fall, I'd take a gamble on David Wright. I think he's very uh, high potential to maintain this kind of level. Of course, he's not going to hit 397, but he could certainly stay well above 300. Yeah, I agree very definitely. A good, a good guy to, uh, to buy right now if somebody wants to sell thinking they're, uh, there's a fall coming. Stephen Nickrand, uh, BaseballHQ.com starting pitching columnist, wrote about some early surprises in his most recent column, and one of the ones he talked about was a guy we mentioned in our preseason broadcast and at the site, Edwin Jackson, the right-hander in Washington. Yeah, Edwin Jackson has gotten off to an excellent start. I mean, uh, was pitching very well, had a bit of a bit of a rough outing this week, but a 3.69 ERA at this point. And the nice thing about that, if you look be, be below that, the surface on that is really good skill support uh, for that 3.69 ERA. He's striking out eight batters per nine innings, excellent control. Um, his expected ERA right now is 3.23, so uh, we could even expect his ERA to come down, and he's displaying elite-level skills, a 117 BPV, um, a low-line drive rate, a low home run per fly rate, have given him a little bit of help. But, uh, but there are plenty of skills in back of what, uh, what Edward Jackson is doing right now. So uh, here's a guy whose quick start might, in fact, continue. And uh, you got to really like that ground ball rate, which he's uh, used to be in the sort of high 30s. He's up over 50% now, and he was around 49% a couple of years ago and in the mid-40s last year. A combination of lots of strikeouts and lots of ground balls is a really good combination for ERA. It's an excellent combination for ERA, and so if he can maintain that ground ball rate, uh, then certainly he's going to keep, do, keep uh, finding a lot of success. Stephen Nickrand also mentioned Jake Westbrook of St. Louis. Yeah, Jake Westbrook is another guy who's gotten off to a very fast start. But in contrast to, uh, to Edwin Jackson, Westbrook's skills don't, uh, don't really support the kind of start that he's having. He's having a, an awful lot of luck right now. A 2.12 ERA, uh, a lot of that is driven by a, uh, a very high strand rate, an 81% strand rate, a low hit rate. 
27% hit rate. Uh, did not give up a fly uh, a home run until uh, Thursday night against Pittsburgh. Finally gave up his first home run of the season. So uh, Jake Westbrook is someone who's, whose ERA is likely to rise a good deal. Uh, 3.30 XERA, and, and that's uh, projected to be higher over the balance of the year. 3.81 is something that we're looking at. I mean, we're not saying that Westbrook's going to be a bad pitcher, but certainly not going to be a sub-3 ERA pitcher. Um, skill, Some skills there, but uh, here's a good guy to sell high on if someone thinks he's having a breakout season. Uh, the one good thing about him, again, is the ground ball percentage, but when I look at it, I see a guy whose dom rate is has been and remains relatively low at around five strikeouts per nine innings. He's walking quite a few less guys, which is good. That helps him keep his command rate above 2.0 strikeouts per walk. But, boy, uh, his history doesn't show a lot of 2.0-plus commands. No, it doesn't. And so, uh, you know, here, here's a guy who's uh, uh, will be lucky to maintain the current skills that he's showing. And even then, the uh, the skills are considerably better than uh, – uh, are not as strong as the ERA that he's showing. So here's a guy who had a 4.66 ERA a year ago. Uh, he's not going to have the breakout season, I think, that, that we might hope. Uh, certainly not going to wind up below a, below a 3 ERA. Nor is he going to maintain a 112 whip, I don't think. Um, probably more like the 135, 140 that he's uh, been accustomed to over low these many years. Uh, the, the thing about pitchers and the thing about ballplayers in general, Nick, is if, you, if they have a pretty long track record and they're not too old and they didn't start too young, if they're, in other words, if they have a pretty normal player history profile, you can figure a pretty good estimate of what a guy's going to do just by looking at his past track record. And the past track record of this guy is an ERA in the mid fours, a whip in a 130 range, just an okay pitcher with not a lot of strikeouts yeah very definitely here's a guy who's been really very very consistent and consistency is a good thing but in this case uh going back to where he's been consistent is not uh, uh says now is a good time to sell high doug dennis our fine bullpens columnist at baseballhq.com's most recent columns called past the Maylox," <laughs> which is a, a reference to the indigestion that bullpens can cause uh, both fantasy owners and major league baseball managers talking about some of the bullpens that seem to be in flux and one of them is in florida where heath bell looks like he's in some kind of trouble and edward mujica came on and got a save on thursday night yeah and edward mujica is a guy to, to take a good look at i mean here's a guy over the past two seasons who has had very very good skills a 169 bpv in 2010 a 116 bpv in 2011 uh so a plus lima grade so a guy that you would look at and say yeah this guy could become a solid closer now there are several factors, though, to, to, fact, to, to look at right at this point with Mujica. Uh, first of all, his skills this, so far this season in a tiny sample have not been as strong as they were last year. Uh, right now, striking out only 4.4 batters per nine innings, which pulls that command ratio way down below our 2.0 threshold. Uh, so uh, at this point, he uh, needs to show better dominance than he's been showing so far. And, and uh, certainly not uh, a lot of innings, uh, six strikeouts, 12 innings pitched, uh, so, you know, that could, that could adjust very quickly if he uh, – maybe he just faced some tough guys and had been able to get the strikeouts. Um, maybe there's something else going on. We, we kind of need to wait and see as the, as the innings pile up. But the other thing to look at is on, on that save that he got um, on Thursday. Uh, first conclusion might be, here's the guy out of the bullpen. Uh, Mujica's going to be it. Um, here's the guy to grab. But take a, a couple of things to, to keep in mind. First of all um, – Heath Bell had worked three consecutive games, so I had not worked them very well, had struggled. 
so he was probably actually not available on Thursday after three consecutive uh, games pitched. Uh, also struggling a bit. Does this mean he's been removed from the closer role? Probably not. Here's a guy with a huge contract. Uh, they're probably going to give him some cha- a, a little longer rope to get things straightened out. So my guess is you'll see Heath Bell back in there very soon. The other, the other guy to look at in that bullpen is Steve Sissick. Uh, Steve Sissick uh, was not available either on, uh, on Thursday after going, I think, two innings the night before. So um, probably Mujica was the available guy on Thursday, and he did succeed and get the save. But I don't think that tells us necessarily where the bullpen is going to go over the next week or two. Yeah, I agree with you, especially with Heath Bell having that giant contract. But Heath Bell's also sporting an 11.74 ERA and a 2.74 WHIP, and his command ratio is 0.6, which means he's actually walking more guys than he's striking out. And this is so out of character for Heath Bell, Nick, that when when you see, especially when control starts to really go awry, I understand it's a very small sample size, but Heath Bell's control has always been around three batters per nine innings. This year, 9.4, and his strikeouts are way off, and his command, as I mentioned, is way off. I wonder if there's an injury problem here that we're going to find out about down the road, because when there's elbow trouble, the first thing that goes is that command. Yeah, I agree with you, Patrick. I, I uh, When I start seeing, like you, when I start seeing those kinds of problems that are really out of character uh, for a pitcher, I begin to wonder about a hidden injury problem. So uh, uh, don't be surprised at all if we learn uh, a few weeks uh, on that Heath Bell does have an injury. All right, Nick, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again in a week. All right, thanks, Patrick. Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. We caught up with Matt just before the sad news came out about Mariano Rivera's injury, and we'll be talking with Rick Wilton about that. In the meantime, the general consensus is the save opportunities in New York will be split between David Robertson and Rafael Soriano until the situation settles out. BaseballHQ.com likes Robertson for his better skill set. Matt, welcome back to the show. Historic week, Patrick. Indeed, we had a Philip Humber perfect game not long ago, and that was kind of a surprise. A little less of a surprise that Jared Weaver had a no-hitter. He's quite a pitcher. Yeah, he's an excellent pitcher, and we had warned early in the season not to expect another 241 ERA, and all he's done is post a 161 ERA. Um, When you only have one game out of six that's a no-hitter, it is going to skew your stats. So what we talk about, you certainly want to take with a grain of salt. But uh, we do see reasons that we would support our previous prediction of an ERA in the mid-threes, not uh, the mid-ones or mid-twos. We see a 24% hit rate and 82% strand. Um, so those tell us that we do see an evening out of this ERA. His expected ERA is 291, but again, we're looking at a very small sample size, one of which was a no-hitter. So I wouldn't want to overdo that sample size. I'd rather look at the past history that's a little bit more consistent. What we do see with Weaver, though, is his control has been better than ever, only 1.4 walks per nine innings, and he's striking out more than a batter per inning, so he's got a great 6.4 command. So this is certainly... A very, very good pitcher. The question is, is he an ace who's going to post a, a 241 ERA again in 2012? And we say no. And the biggest reason is, this is definitely a fly ball pitcher. Each of the previous three seasons, his fly ball rate had been 48% or higher. And his home run per fly ball rate has consistently been below 10%, which is the norm. It's always been 8% or lower. So we would expect that fly ball rate to even out and uh, create some problems later on in the season. 
as his hit rate and strand normalize. On the other hand, when you say we expect his home run per fly ball rate to normalize or to even out, over the last, since 2006, 8%788886. It seems like it has evened out. I remember Gene McCaffrey a few weeks ago uh, before the season started was on HQ Radio, and he said about Jared Weaver, at some point when this guy rings up seven consecutive years of home run per fly ball rates under 10%, maybe we should just believe he's capable of it. He's getting a lot of pop-ups or easy fly balls. Well, it's certainly a possibility that he's capable of that. That's for sure. Uh, what we see is that in 2011, he had only a 6% home run for a fly ball rate, which is lower than the 8% he posted the previous three seasons. And so far in 2012, it's only 4%. So I would argue that, yes, his home rate will go up. And because he's putting more balls in the air overall, having a lower home run per fly ball rate isn't really that great. It basically makes him normal. If you look at his home run per nine innings, on average, it's about one, maybe 0.9, because even though his rate is lower, he's giving up more fly balls in general, so he's still giving up as many home runs as any other pitcher. Yeah, but on the other hand, he's striking out so many guys and walking so few guys, the chances are a lot of those homers are going to be solo shots, and in the meantime, most of his fly balls are still going to be outs. And that's why his performance has been so great in 2010 and 2011 with the ERAs of 3.01 and 2.41. So I think that's the question. Is our, our formula of expected ERA, the lowest it's been is 3.57. And uh, part of that's been a very high strand rate. And maybe he's now normalized where he can strand 74% of the runners or 76% of the runners. But across the full realm of pitchers, we don't see that with starting pitchers very often. Sometimes with relievers but not with starters. And his high strand rate and low hit rate uh, maybe make us look at this whole system in question. But as of now, we have to take what's worked for us over the years, and that says that he should regress and have an ERA north of three. Yeah, but you know what, Matt? You know, we would have said that in 2006, and we'd have been wrong, and we would have said it in 07, and we'd have been wrong in 08, 09, 010. We'd always be wrong. And at some point, I think you just have to look at the possibility this guy's like Ichiro Suzuki on the batting side. He's just an outlier. He's just one of those guys who strands 76% of his of his base runners and, and gives up a 26% hit rate every year. And just take, take it as uh, as a fact and value him accordingly. We could, but if you look at, you mentioned 2007, 2008, 2009. In 2007, his hit rate was 32%. In 2008, it was 31%. So he has shown higher hit rates, so he's not established a norm like he had in home number fly ball rate. And I think if you look at his ERAs in 2007, 391. In 2006, 433. In 2009, 375. Uh, at those times, he was not striking out as many batters. He was walking more batters. But his expected ERA really did predict that he wasn't quite that good. Um, so that's why I would say we'd more expect the th somewhere between 2009's 3.75 and 2010's 3.01 as opposed to expecting a repeat of 2011's 2.41 ERA. I'll, I'll tell you what, Matt, a uh, gentleman's wager, I'll say he finishes 2012 with an ERA under 2.80. Okay. Sounds great. All right. Well, I'm in. We'll try to remember, and we'll follow up near the end of the year. Uh, staying in Anaheim, speaking of skills, but with uh, dire outcomes, Albert Pujols, after a month, has no home runs. He's barely hitting 220. Well, here's a guy who definitely um, is a great buy-low candidate. We talked about him at the beginning of the year that uh, I wasn't concerned. He's certainly, again, a great player, just like Jared Weaver is a very good pitcher. But when you change 
something with someone who's been very consistent, sometimes there's an adjustment period. We saw it with Jason Wirth. We saw it with lots of different players. When they change homes, change managers, locker rooms, fan bases, they often want to press and do too much. And if you look at Albert Pools, you have to say that's what he's doing. His walk rate's down to 6%, uh, which is far below his career norm. His contact rate's down to 86%. And his hit rate is 24%. So there's luck that's working against him as well. It's driven all of his numbers down. That being said, he has a 25% line drive rate. And that's very strange to have that high of a line drive rate and a low hit rate. His fly ball rate really is just about the same as it was in 2011. Uh, so he's actually lowered his ground ball rate. He's actually driving the ball when he does make contact just as well. It's just not falling in for hits. So I would say a large part of this is due to his hit rate uh, of 24% and his plate impatience. And I think as hits start to fall for Pujols, he's going to stop pressing and start being more patient at the plate, and everything else should even out in the end. Well, from your lips to God's ear, he's my biggest dollar guy in tout wars, and he's killing me, I have to say. And in a minute, we'll talk about something else that's killing me in that league. But Albert Pujols definitely looks like a guy who you got to be careful about. But if the price is right, and the price certainly could be right, might be a guy to, to look into uh, rostering. Further upheaval in the Anaheim lineup, Matt, with Mike Trout being called up. They had a very big, full outfield. Now they've got rid of Bobby Abreu, but there's still some guys who are going to be losing some playing time, one suspects, with Mike Trout, the super prospect, on the roster. Yeah, Vernon Wells is probably the biggest candidate to lose playing time. We did talk about him a couple weeks ago, but he's certainly not reversed course here in 2012. Uh, He has a low hit rate, 23%, but he also has a horrible walk rate of about 3%, an eye ratio of only 0.15. So it's not just luck holding down his batting average, as Matthew Gelfin said in his article on playing time today earlier this week. He's also not getting the ball in the air. His fly balls are at a career-low clip of 34%. So he's uh, this is a guy, again, very small sample size, but really showing no signs of changing what happened in 2011 at this point in the season. But we should point out that Mike Trout is by no means a sure thing. He had a fairly extensive look last year, and uh, he wasn't that impressive. And he so far has started off this year, you know, he's drawing a few more walks and looks a little more comfortable out there, but he's only hitting 150. Well, and, you know, last year he had 256 expected batting average. He did have better than average power, average speed. But him, like Bryce Harper, people are going to get all excited and expect these guys to come in and be superstars right away. And, the fact that they're hot prospects means they come up earlier and maybe haven't had the same seasoning, and they are just as risky as any other prospect this year. For a long-term keeper league, they're great. But when you're playing some of these contests where it's a redraft league, uh, they are not necessarily worth all the hype and the price that will cost to get them. Over on the other side of the country, Matt, uh, the Tampa Bay Rays have been a real pleasant surprise for their fans, being more than competitive in that tough AL East, and uh, they really took one in the chops the other day when Evan Longoria partially tore a hamstring. He's going to be out, they say, somewhere between four and eight weeks. I guess it's hard to say which, uh, but any any lengthy absence for Evan Longoria is tough for Tampa Bay and for his fantasy owners. Is there any playing time benefit to be accrued by a sharp owner? Well, really only in AL-only leagues, because in mixed leagues, I don't think you're going to want to touch Will Rimes or Jeff Kepinger, who are going to gain at bats here. Rimes does have some batting average upside and a little bit of speed. He had a 0.89 in 276 career at bats. And uh, with the Tigers in 2010, he hit 304. So we know he can do it at the major league level. Kepinger also is a proven veteran. But really, his stats are very lopsided. He really likes left-handed pitchers much better than right-handed pitchers, and that's why he hasn't gotten really an everyday job at this point in his career. So uh, 
those two guys are most likely to play more. Sean Rodriguez might move over to third base to accommodate them. But uh, reality is, unless you're in an AL-only league where playing time is so important, those are probably not guys you want to roster in the meantime. Up in New York, uh, the Yankees' problems with the rotation continue, I guess, while they wait for the arrival of Andy Pettit, which is by no means a guaranteed fix. Freddie Garcia has been demoted after being ineffective. It looks like David Phelps draws into the rotation. What do we think of that? Well, we know they weren't as patient with Garcia as we had preached last week here at AL Market Watch, and we still think Garcia is a great buy-low candidate for something if you can stash him later on the season. But David Phelps is a, a nice little pitcher, nothing outstanding. He's really thrived in the bullpen. Uh, last year he had 18 innings. His expected area was 370. He strikes out seven batters per nine innings, walks about two per nine innings. That was very consistent with his AAA numbers at Scranton Wilkesbury, near my home here in central Pennsylvania. Um, but he's not really a dominating pitcher, but certainly a serviceable guy who can control the strike zone. And with that Yankees lineup behind him, uh, we don't say chase wins, but if you're looking on the waiver wire, this is a guy more likely than someone playing for San Diego to get wins. Or Kansas City. Or Kansas City. And speaking of Kansas City, their rotation is going to be shored up with the return of Felipe Paulino. He's supposed to be uh, back in the rotation off the DL this week. Felipe Paulino is a very intriguing pitcher. He's intriguing to Baseball HQ listeners, but I think most people really discount his potential. Uh, the metrics we use here uncover him as a gem. He strikes out nearly a batter per inning. His strikeout-to-walk ratios, 2.4 to 1. Uh, but he really hasn't put it all together. He's had streaks of effectiveness but very inconsistent. So here's a guy, if you're the bottom of your league looking to take a chance, Kansas City's been slumping horribly, and if they start getting hot, this is the type of guy who could give them a few good solid pitching outings to get them there. Uh, you don't want to pay a lot for him, but this is the kind of guy at Baseball HQ we uncover that has great metrics underneath, and uh, when he puts together, he could be a real strong pitcher, a real sleeper for 2012. Yeah, I had Felipe Polino in an AL-only league last year, and, and inconsistent is the word you'd want to choose, but boy, talk about a ton of potential with all those strikeouts. Yeah, he's had nice numbers for the last several years, but has you know been under the radar pitching in Houston and Kansas City, and uh, people aren't looking at his strikeouts per innings. So if he does discover that strike zone, he can keep his head on his shoulder square, and this guy has a chance to be something really good. Uh, I know you wanted to, before we go, Matt, talk about Brandon Morrow of Toronto, whose DOM rate, uh, strikeout per nine rate, has really fallen quite a bit over the last couple of years, and yet he's strangely seems to be getting more effective over that same time. Well, I think the answer is he's controlling the ball much better. His walk rate's down to 2.2 here in 2012, compared to 3.5 in 2011, 4.1 in 2010, and 4.9 in 2009. And the fact that he's getting the ball over the plate... Uh, it's a very strange stat line we're looking at because he was the leader in strikeouts per nine innings of starters with over 175 innings last year. But this year he's down to 5.8 strikeouts per nine innings, which should concern you. But he's hiding it with a very low 22% hit rate and a very high 86% strand. What's interesting about his numbers is you'd think he's putting the ball over the plate, pitching to contact, and increasing his ground ball rate. He has increased his ground ball rate to 46%, but instead of translating fly balls into ground balls, there's the line drives going to ground balls. His line drive rate is very low at 11%. So in reality, most likely over the rest of the season, those ground balls are going to return to line drives. His hit rate's going to go up. His strain rate's going to go down. And uh, his ERA is going to be, again, around 3.5 compared to where it is now 
which is just three because it's being masked by those things. Why is it being masked? He's been very unlucky with the home runs. His fly ball rates, there's home run per fly ball rates, 17%. Again, these small sample sizes cause some crazy numbers, giving up almost two homers per nine innings. So we expect that to normalize a little bit because that's far above his career average. And as that, we're going to have several different factors going here, but it's just a really interesting stat line to look at to say, ooh, Morrill's really broke through. His ERA is only 3.3, 3.03. And you look at his strikeout rate, and it's plummeted. And you say, well, he's got better control. Maybe that's the reason. Well, he's got a better ground ball rate. When you look deeper in these numbers, there's a lot of different factors rotating around Morrow. It's be really interesting to watch him throughout the season. We'll check back in and see how these stats start to normalize. But this is a, a pitcher who, at first glance, you think is broken through. But in reality, is the same. He's a completely different pitcher, but is expected to raise Virtually, it's 386 versus 340, 363 the last three years. His expected ERA is very similar. You know what I think it is, Matt? I think it's the John Farrell effect. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. I think John Farrell, the former pitching coach with Boston, really wants his pitchers to pitch deeper into games by focusing less on strikeouts and focusing more on putting the ball into play with with uh, trajectories that are easy to handle, ground balls, easy fly balls. And uh, you've mentioned that uh, whether it's luck and small sample size or whatever, that Morrow's line drive rate is way off and his ground ball rate is way up. That's a really excellent way to reduce your ERA, even at the expense of strikeouts. And if you're getting more innings, that's a really good way to reduce your ERA as well. And the reason I think that is Ricky Romero's dom rate has fallen from 7.5 two years ago to 6.2 this year, which is a not quite as drastic a decline. But remember Clay Buchholz, when he came up, he was an 8.7, 8.6 type Dom guy. And over the years in Boston, his Dom rate declined steadily to 6.7, 6.2, and 5 this year. And I, I just can't help thinking this is something to do with John Farrell's theories on how pitchers can be the most effective in terms of getting deep into games, getting wins rather than uh, getting strikeouts, and helping the club by putting the ball into play in front of an excellent defense. I don't disagree with you at all. I think it's beyond John Farrell. I've heard lots of different commentators, pitching coaches and things, managers talking about pitching to contact, being more efficient with your pitches. Now that pitch counts being used by most every team in the league, it's more important for the pitchers to get their outs quickly than ever before so they can stay in the game. So I think most every team is now talking about being efficient with your pitches, pitching to weak contact. I think it's we're seeing that across the game. Now, whether that affects their hit rate, strand rate, and the metrics we use here remains to be seen. But I think every team's preaching to their pitchers to try to be more efficient with their pitches, get later into the game, deeper into the game, to help the bullpen out. Whereas in the past, it was just rear back and fire and, and strike out however many you can. Uh, now, every team seems to be talking about pitch efficiency. And uh, I think Morrow is just an extreme example of it, especially with a small sample size, the fact that he was such a dominant strikeout pitcher. Uh, and now... He is not, and it's interesting that, yes, he obviously is consciously throwing the ball over the plate. It'll be interesting to see if some of these extreme numbers hold true throughout the rest of the season. Yeah, it certainly will, and uh, you can see over time, I mean, across baseball, batting averages are down, batting average on balls and play are down, line drive rates are down, hard hit hard hit ball rates are down. Uh, something's going on here in baseball, and we may have to do a big rethink, Matt. I, absolutely, and I think that's these are the kinds of things that the game changes, and there's different theories out there. I just hope that Brandon Morrow ends up more like Ricky Romero and less like Clay Buchholz in his results. 
Yeah, no kidding. But it's certainly going to make us rethink how we're going to play our 5 by 5 leagues to gather strikeouts because all of a sudden guys like Craig Kimbrell, high strikeout relievers like him, take on a little more value because they, they start edging closer to the lesser strikeout starters. Uh, Matt, you'll have your Market Pulse commentary a little later in the show, and you'll be back again next week to talk about the American League. Look forward to it, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Our feature interview is next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. You are challenged by the game of baseball to do your very best day in and day out. And that's all I've ever tried to do. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick David. A pleasure now to be joined by Dr. HQ. It's Rick Wilton from BaseballHQ.com, our injury expert. Rick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Hi, Patrick. It's been a long time. It certainly has. How are you feeling? I am doing good. Uh, it's, been, it's been a long road to get to this point, but I am uh, uh, doing better and able to post more stuff on, on Baseball HQ, and this is my first radio appearance or hopefully uh quite a few this season so let's get into it yeah injuries are more important than ever for fantasy baseball players so it's going to be good if we can get you as a regular guest Uh, but before we get to some of the players who are hurt i would like to ask your opinion on a debate that's been raging on the baseball hq forums someone said on the forums there's some statistical evidence somewhere that pitchers who throw a lot of sliders and i believe the figure they used was more than 30 percent of their pitches were sliders tend to break down more often the year after they hit that 30 percent threshold than pitchers who don't throw that many sliders have you ever seen anything like this? You know, I've seen different numbers, uh, Patrick, in that area before, and, um, you know, I, I would have to see a, a really detailed study of it over the course of a few years to really be able to, um, you know, to, to make that uh, assumption myself when I evaluated uh, pitchers. I, I think the first thing is you have to realize is that uh, it's kind of a baseline. 30% of the pitchers, roughly one in three pitchers, um, uh, ends up on the DL on average per season, so you, you got to use that as a baseline when you're looking at it. And I'm, I haven't seen enough information to convince me that that's true. I think every, the combination of the fact that pitchers get hurt on a, a fairly regular basis, plus every pitcher is different. Just because one pitcher can throw, uh, you know, a high amount of curveballs or a high amount of uh, sliders or you know, even a forkball, that was a problem in, in the past with some pitchers. It worked for some, but it doesn't work for others. And I just, uh, I think it would have to take a huge study with a lot of evidence to, to, to make that, uh, that determination. And I don't think, uh, that information is out there right now from what I've seen. I think it really needs to be taken on a per basis, uh, as per pitcher on a per basis situation. Yeah, I remember hearing a few years ago when uh, Roy Halladay was having arm trouble and he stopped throwing the cutter, and uh, right away his arm trouble went away, and of course everybody jumps aboard and says, see, it's the cutter that's doing it, but hey, Mariano Rivera, he's going to be out for the year. It's got nothing to do with throwing cutters. He's torn his ACL. Is this it for Mariano Rivera? Uh, my my feeling on Rivera's situation is this, Patrick. I think part of the his decision will be determined by how much of the, I mean, the ACL's been torn, but he also has... Uh, a torn meniscus, and if that meniscus has been torn all the way through and they have to remove part of it to the point where maybe he's in a bone-in-bone situation where the the, uh, the bottom part of his femur and the upper part of his, his tibia, the lower leg bone, uh, if they're touching in the knee or there's a chance that they'll touch, then um, 
he may call it quits and just say, "I, you know, the knee's damaged too much. Let's just let's hang it up. I've had a great career." But uh, you know, he's such a competitor. He's been such a great uh, pitcher for so long, and his arm's been so solid for so long. And I think that uh, if 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 the knee could be rehabbed, I would think that he'll rehab the ACL and hopefully get the uh, meniscus fixed and. Uh, come back because I don't think this is the way he wants to go out and like Jamie Moyer I think he wants to go out pitching and I think that's what will happen and uh, I suspect next year unless the the news on the knee is not really not good then we'll see him back in a Yankee uniform next year. And uh, in the meantime, I guess uh, Joe Girardi has said that uh, David Robertson will be his first choice in all likelihood for the missing save opportunities with Rafael Soriano maybe in the mix as well. Uh, another big name uh, suffering an injury, Rick, was Evan Longoria, the third baseman in Tampa, tore his right hamstring, which sounds very serious. He's projected to miss four to eight weeks, I've read. is First of all, is tearing your hamstring really as serious as it sounds? Well, it can be. It depends on how much you tear and where you tear it. In his case, it sounds like he tore it uh, based on how much uh, time they're telling us. You know, the four to eight weeks, uh, I've talked to some people, I think it's probably closer to six to eight weeks. Um, uh, it's behind the right knee um, in that area, which is a difficult area um, to recover from. But I think in his situation, um, when you watch the replay and you saw him sliding into second base, you knew something was wrong immediately. Uh, based on the projected downtime, I would have to guess that it's probably a grade two tear. And even though the uh, the Rays are saying that uh, he's a fast dealer and they think that they'll see him back earlier than later, um, I think that in the past they based that on the fact that he came back from a bleak injury quicker than they thought and also a fractured finger. I don't think those situations relate to this. A hamstring is a totally different injury, especially when you tear it. And um, I would think that... Uh, uh, Longoria owners should probably be prepared for him to miss a minimum of six weeks and probably closer to eight unless he makes a, a miraculous cover uh, recovery. But I don't think that's going to happen based on everything I've seen uh, early on. Well, that raises two questions. First of all, suppose he does come back whenever, whenever he finally does come back, say it's eight weeks from now. How is his performance likely to be affected by having had a torn right hamstring? Well, I, I, the first concern I would have is that the surface that he plays on half his home games is really difficult. It's a, a hard surface, and I would think that that would uh, take a toll on his legs a little bit. Uh, as far as his power numbers are concerned, I think that when, once he gets back close enough and he's regained enough flexibility so that he can take his normal swing at the plate, I think uh, offensively he will uh, he'll do okay as far as stolen base. He's never been a huge stolen base threat, so I don't think it makes a big impact in that area. But from an offensive point, Point of view, I think that would. Uh, I, I don't think it'll have a big impact. And then uh, the next question is, does it uh, impact him in the field? And uh, uh, I think they needed his bat so much, even if it reduced his range in the field a little bit. I don't think that they would take him out of the lineup. They need his bat desperately. So as soon as he's able to play third base and they can get him back, where they're not concerned about him suffering another injury, then he'll be ready to get back in the lineup. But I still think that's going to be closer to eight weeks than it will be four weeks. Just out of curiosity, Rick, in your experience, is there such a thing as a fast healer? Uh, yeah, there is. There's some people that, uh, for whatever reason, um, will heal faster, and that is because uh, maybe their body's just built for it, where they just recover quickly. I think another thing that has to be factored in is that some players are able to play 
uh, at 80 percent, you know, capacity and be productive. I think um, Chipper Jones is probably one of the ones that, uh, in the past, has proven with all his injuries that he's able to come back quicker than he normally would. Then there's other players that just seem to linger and struggle with it, and and some of that is like uh, a great example of that is J.D. Drew, who used to play for the Red Sox, among other teams. He would struggle to come back and was considered a slow healer. I'm not sure if it was a slow heel or the fact that he wanted to play as close to 100% as possible. But, yeah, there are some players that are considered fast healers, but uh, I think a lot of it has to be taken into account. It has to be how how much uh, of a capacity close to 100% that the player will play at, uh, and that has something to do with it also. Listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Rick Wilton, Dr. HQ from BaseballHQ.com, our injury expert. And Rick, some other third baseman. We were talking about Evan Longoria. It hasn't been a good uh, couple of weeks for third baseman. Pablo Sandoval has a fractured hamate bone in his left hand. What does that mean? Yeah, he's got the, 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 the hamate bone in the hand is not an essential bone uh, as far as the function of the hand. That's the good part. So what they'll do... Uh, as they'll do surgery and they'll take that out, and then he has to recover and regain the strength in his his hand and his wrist. And uh, in a way, fortunate for Sandoval, he had the same injury last year. So one, he knows what he's up against, and two, this year is not in his throwing hand. So last year it took him. Uh, he missed uh, 41 days with that injury uh, last year. So um, he should come back a little bit quicker this year because it's his non-throwing hand, and he's been through the uh, rehab before, so he knows what to expect so the projected downtime right now is um uh four to six weeks and i think that's probably going to be pretty accurate i would think close between five and six weeks is when we'll see him back and usually when we have hand and wrist injuries sometimes it's a problem for power hitters but that wasn't the case with sandoval last year yeah i've always had kind of a, an unwritten rule that for the most part when a when a power hitter suffers a wrist or a hand injury it usually takes them up to a year to regain all of his power, but there are exceptions to the rule. And last year, for whatever reason, once he had his surgery and he came back last year, uh, his power numbers did not decrease uh, markably after he came back. He was pretty consistent last year. Uh, and the Giants believe that's going to happen again this year. So he may be the exception to the rule uh, as far as hand injuries are concerned. And uh, when he comes back, he should be able to pick up where he left off as far as his power numbers are concerned. Talking about guys at the hot corner, Kevin Euclid is now on the disabled list with back spasms. Uh, the Bosox say that there's no disc involvement. What the heck's going on with Kevin Euclid? Well, I tell you, Patrick, when you look at him and what's going on with him with all the injuries with the sports hernia last year and some back issues last year as far as spasm and how he has them again, uh, from all indications from Boston, they're saying that there's no no disc involvement. They don't believe there's any nerve involvement at all. He just has spasms, and they wanted to take the uh, conservative approach and, and try to nip this in the bud before it got more serious. That's why they put him on the DL plus with with uh, Middlebrooks being so held, uh, so hot in minor the minor leagues, they decided they wanted to give him a chance to to, to face major league pitching and also give Yukos a rest. They expect him to be back within roughly two weeks uh, unless he suffers a setback, which we don't expect. Them when he gets back in the lineup, is he going to be able to stay in the lineup? Because I think Yukos is getting to the point where he looks like a really old mid-30s third baseman, and he's breaking down physically, and the question is, can he avoid the DL again this season and stay healthy? And I think that's a, a big if right now. 
Even if he can, Rick, Euclid seems to be one of those guys who's who's going down the path where he's always got some small injury going on. And I'm wondering, is there a pattern of such players that we should expect it to continue? And does that necessarily mean a shortened career? You know, Patrick, that's a great point with Euclid. I think that uh, uh, he's becoming, uh, I hate to say this, I hate to put the label on somebody, but I he's real close to being injury prone. And there's just some guys that just start to break down physically, and it looks like Euclid is one of those players. And I think from uh, a fantasy point of view, if you own him, I think you've got to project and be prepared to have to replace him uh, at least once during the season, if not twice, because he's going to have downtime. So spend time on the DL, and he's already on the DL once this year, so it wouldn't be a surprise to me or probably his owners if he breaks down again with a sore arm or a foot problem, hamstring problem, or more back issues once he comes back uh, from the DL. And you've said, Rick, in past uh, interviews here at Baseball HQ Radio that when a guy comes back from an injury, sometimes he's favoring the injured spot, and so his mechanics get off in other spots, and so his back gets better, but now his arm is a problem, or his his arm gets better, his elbow gets better, but he's favoring it, so his shoulder starts causing him trouble. These kind of cascade injuries have an effect too. Yeah, they really do, and it's you know the player wants to get back, and I mean you know Euclid is a is a terrific competitor, and the question is, will he try to come back? well before he's 100%, and if that's the case, then um, he may come back and his back's favoring his back, and then he ends up trying to maybe uh, not twist his torso so much, maybe he suffers a, a strained oblique or, he, you know, a strained shoulder because he's trying to throw more with his arm than all with his body or whatever, and it just, uh, you know, it just kind of seems to a waterfall-type injuries where it just keeps getting worse and worse because he's trying to play and play through an injury, and uh, that just makes the situation even that much worse. Speaking of third baseman, uh, Rick, Ryan Zimmerman, a fine third baseman for the Washington Nationals, has a sprained right shoulder, and he's had some cortisone injections. What's the prognosis here? The, uh, the, the, the Washington people say that his situation is that he's got a little bit of a sprained AC joint. That's where the... Um, the clavicle meets the shoulder in the shoulder region, and there's a bunch of ligaments in there, and he's got some inflammation in there, and they've given him two cortisone injections, and they believe that's probably enough to clear up the inflammation. Uh, the report that's come out of Washington indicates that there's no structural damage, i.e. Uh, there's no uh, bone spurs in there, there's no bone floating around, and there's no what they believe is a tear to either ligaments or the capsule, which is the soft tissue that surrounds the shoulder, and that's the good news. The bad news it is take two uh, two injections to to clear it up. They uh, right now target a return somewhere between the fifth and the eighth, or maybe the ninth of um, of uh, May before he comes back. But uh, you know the situation is that it could become chronic, so they need to be careful with this. And I think they'll watch him real closely. And um, if it's a situation where the inflammation comes back here pretty quick, I think that uh, uh, the next DL stand would be longer than it is this time, and they'll have to make sure that it clears up and doesn't come back uh, with the second DL stint. So uh, as we're seeing with Zimmerman, boy, there's a real run on uh, third base injuries, and uh, I'm sure in mixed leagues the free agent pool, as far as candidates to fill third base slots, are probably gone by now.
You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Dr. HQ, Rick Wilton, the injury expert at BaseballHQ.com. And Rick, we're talking about inflammation. Sergio Santos, the closer for the Toronto Blue Jays, he's uh, on the DL with the inflammation in his pitching shoulder. They're looking at exercises, rehab, that kind of thing. Uh, first of all, how long does he figure to be out? And second of all, how likely is it that he's effective when he comes back? Yeah, well, right now he's projected to be out till the early to the mid part of June, and uh, what they're trying to do is they want to make sure that they get the inflammation and the soreness out of his shoulder, so they shut him down for two weeks, which means he's going to need roughly uh, ten days of throwing to get back to where he was before. Once they get to that point, then they've got to decide if they're going to do a rehab assignment, which is likely or whatever. But uh, uh, once he comes, once they're allowed, he's allowed to resume throwing. They'll do some strength exercises, uh, mainly which it'll be, it'll be long tossing to get his shoulder strength back up and then they'll test him and if he gets his shoulder strength to a certain level then they'll set up a rehab program and right now reports out of Toronto indicate that, like I said earlier, it's probably the early to mid-June. He's my bullpen guy so I'm looking real close at the situation and I believe that based on uh, the information again coming out of Toronto as they've caught it in time where it didn't turn into something real, real serious, and he's um, uh, the future, a bright future as far as the closer is concerned. So they're going to take good care of him and be conservative. And um, if he doesn't come back to the middle part of June, I wouldn't be surprised. Also with inflammation on the DL, Brett Gardner, the fast base stealer outfielder in uh, New York Yankees. But in this case, it's in his non-throwing elbow, and it's the result of a bone bruise. And I'm, I'm wondering, Rick, is inflammation different uh, when we look at it from an analytical point of view, when it's the result of a trauma rather than something chronic or the result of mechanical issues? It can be because, in a, Patrick, in a bone bruise situation, um, what happens is that the bone bangs up against more bone, and if there's, there's cartilage that goes around a lot of the bones in the joint, uh, especially in the elbow and the knee joint. And um, when you get a bone bruise, the cartilage that's on the outside of the bone is called articular cartilage, and that's different than the cartilage in the knee, which is called meniscus. It's a lot thinner, and it's a lot more fragile when it comes to a bone bruise situation. And if the bone bruise is severe enough, then that cartilage is, is torn up and, and torn away from uh, the surface of the bone. Then it becomes a lot more painful for the player or the athlete to to bounce back from that. In this situation, I don't think... Uh, this is a real serious situation with Gardner, but they're trying to be uh, uh, conservative with him to make sure that it heals, that they get the inflammation out in the joint area, but also on the surface of the bone, and it doesn't turn into a real chronic situation where he'll have elbow issues uh, down the road in his career. So they're trying to be conservative, and the Yankees have a track record of being uh, ultra-conservative, a lot of their players, especially their pitchers, but even their position players. And I think that's what the case is with Gardner. I think if it were the, the playoffs, we would have seen him back already. But I um, uh, should be back soon. I am not seeing an exact date on when he'll be back, but uh, uh, I would think uh, definitely in the near term he'll be back and uh, in the lineup and he can get his owners uh, the stolen bases that I'm sure they desperately need. Carl Crawford of Boston, speaking of elbows, Rick, has a sprained elbow that they say is going to keep him out till late July, so after the All-Star break. And does that seem like a very long time for a sprained elbow? And I know Crawford has been to see one of the Tommy John doctors. Is there any possibility that this is a Tommy John situation he could be done for the year? 
Yeah, the, the uh, when they went out to the specialist to see the specialist, um, uh, and the evaluation came in on the elbow, uh, it wasn't deemed to be uh, at the level of requiring Tommy John surgery as far as the sprained elbow. Well, when you have a sprained elbow, that means that there's there is some damage to the ligament. And the, in the uh, when they did the MRI and he did the testing on the elbow, they determined that there was enough of the ligament that was intact. Uh, that they could do a rehab program. Obviously, rest was the first part, uh, allowed to get the inflammation out, and then they would start building up the strength, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But when you look at the recovery, they need to make sure that it does heal so it doesn't tear it by coming back too soon. And when they've laid out the recovery plan for Crawford, uh, it turns out that it's 12 weeks and that's three months, which would put his return uh, probably late the latter part of July before he comes back. So he's going to miss the first half of the season. But the Red Sox medical staff believes that um, once he comes back, that they'll, they're they're confident that uh, they won't have any other issues with the elbow and they'll be able to play the rest of the season uh, in the outfield and also be able to, to swing the bat at the plate without any concerns regarding the elbow. It was Dr. James Andrews in Birmingham, Alabama, that Crawford visited. And, uh, well, from your lips to God's ear, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking that have Crawford on their rosters. Um, is there any reason to suspect that uh, the recovery will be less than full if he comes back too soon? When they sent him out and he got evaluated, I think what they were checking was not so much to to just back up what they were doing. They wanted to make sure that they weren't making a mistake by rehabbing the injury, and I think part of that was to provide Crawford with some comfort to know that the rehab was the best way to go with this injury, and he did not need to have surgery. And uh, if he follows the uh, the plan of the full 12 weeks, he should be able to come back and have the confidence to know that he's not going to suffer an injury and then have to have surgery and then miss the rest of you know 2012 and also probably into 2013 a little bit. So for Crawford owners, be patient. He will be back. Uh, they'll get roughly a half of a season out of him, and I think once he comes back, he'll be ready to go. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Dr. HQ, Rick Wilton of BaseballHQ.com, our injury expert. And, Rick, let's turn to a couple of uh, name pitchers who've been on the shelf, starting with Cliff Lee, the left-hander in Philadelphia, strained left oblique. And I remember in past years, Rick, we've talked a lot about these oblique injuries. Are they still occurring as frequently, and what's the deal with Cliff Lee? Yeah, there still is. It's all, you know, we, when we first started talking about this, Patrick, and, uh, oblique injuries really didn't surface until right around 2000 or whatever. And I think that's because, uh, baseball players spend so much time in the weight room now trying to build up their core muscles that, uh, uh, the ligaments in the torso just aren't built for some of the strength of the muscles, uh, in the torso area and the core muscles. And it just puts undue, pressure on the uh the ligaments and um the muscles in some of those area in the area of the torso area in the rib cage and i think that's why we're seeing more of those injuries um you know the downtime used to be 28 days now it's up to 34 now so we're seeing it's taking a little bit longer to come back and um the point that you make about pitchers is that in the the twisting and the turning for a pitcher happens obviously on every pitch that goes to the plate so you have to make sure that when a pitcher has an oblique injury that one he re- he is able to regain all the flexibility so he has a normal pitching motion and two he has the strength back so that he can make his normal 
pitching motion. He doesn't lose some velocity, and then you uh, get in a situation where maybe he tries to compensate for that oblique injury or the intercostal injury, which is another one that we see a lot with pitchers. Um, so in, in both those situations, you want to make sure that the pitcher has complete flexibility and he has his normal strength so that he can pitch without having any uh, undue stress on his shoulder or his elbow. And in Leaf's situation, he's had this before, so it's a, he knows what he has to go through, but he needs to make sure that he's 100% before he comes back. Do, do you know if the Phillies have a good track record, uh, their training staff, of making sure that a guy like Cliff Lee is not going to come back too soon? Because they have a fairly substantial investment in this guy and a tremendous interest in keeping him healthy and on the field as much as possible. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, they're going to make sure, and the, and the Phillies are, uh, their medical staff has got a pretty good reputation as far as taking care of their player injuries. And, uh, uh, it's rare that when a player comes back that he comes back too quickly. So they're going to, I mean, they're suffering right now because their offense isn't doing real well and, and, uh, they need their starting pitching, uh, desperately, but they're going to make sure that Lee, uh, is healthy before they bring him back. And, uh, I think right now, uh, we're probably looking at a mid-May return for Lee, but I mean, if uh, if he gets out there and throws and he feels any kind of twinge in the oblique area or he's, uh, he has trouble getting loose and he's not uh, able to extend when he's throwing his breaking ball and doing uh, his full pitching motion, they will uh, be conservative and uh, they won't have to shut him down, but they'll delay his return a little bit. But I think uh, right now a uh, return between the 11th and the 16th of May is what I'm looking when he'll come back. And he should be all right at that time. The Yankees are having all kinds of trouble with their rotation once you get past C.C. Sabathia. And uh, one of the guys they were hoping to count on this year, Michael Pineda, turns up with a torn labrum in his pitching shoulder before he really got on the mound for the Yankees. What do you think of, of this situation for Michael Pineda? There's no way he's coming back this year, right? No, there's no way. And this is the first, you know, with this rash of injuries we've had, Patrick, with the big names, he was the first one that kind of started this rush in the last couple of weeks here. And he's, he has a torn labrum in his pitching shoulder. And I have not seen the, uh, you know, once we're able to see the results of, uh, yeah, hopefully it'll be released of, uh, what they saw when they opened him up inside in his shoulder. But, um, he's got a torn labrum. Hopefully he doesn't have any other damage there. But the track record of pitchers, uh, it's not the end of a pitcher's career, but the track record of pitchers suffering uh, torn labrums is not good, and the odds are better than 50-50 that uh, he may not be the pitcher uh, that he was before the injury, and uh, uh, the Yankees will obviously give him the best care that they can, but it's unfortunate because he was such a, a terrific prospect as far as a pitching talent, and the question is we don't know how much of uh, – uh, he'll be able to regain both the uh, the strength in his arm and how be able to stay healthy and to be able to be an effective pitcher. But he's definitely gone for this year. And um, uh, if it's slow going next spring and he starts the season on a deal next spring, I wouldn't be surprised by that also. One last pitcher also in New York, Mike Pelfrey, started four straight seasons with 30-plus starts. Not this year. He's got a slightly torn ulnar collateral ligament and looks like uh, Tommy John is, is is in his future. Yeah, we're learning this year with, with pitchers that seem to be rock solid. Pelfrey, you know, four, like you said, four straight seasons with all those starts. And with Mariano Rivera, there's no such thing as a sure thing when it comes to pitching. And in his case, 
Uh, he's kind of held the, the Mets pitching staff together the past few years as far as being, you know, a rock and being able to give them those guaranteed 30 starts. But uh, uh, has a slightly torn ulnar collateral ligament, uh, enough so that he needs Tommy John surgery, so he'll have that. Um, you know, he'll miss, obviously, all of the 2012 season, and the, uh, the Mets are hoping that they get him back for uh, hopefully May of next year to be able to, to get back in their uh, the rotation and give him maybe – 2022 saves next year. I mean, 2022 starts next year, but um, uh, it's unfortunate because he's been, uh, uh, you know, pretty steady the past four years, and they're going to miss that consistency from him uh, uh, this season. And, Rick, we should remind anybody who doesn't know it who's listening, Tommy John surgery uh, is a very recoverable procedure at this point. I mean, most pitchers recover and, and get back on the mound. It's completely different than having a shoulder injury. That, for Michael Pineda, for instance, there's no equivalent to Tommy John for a labrum issue. No, there isn't. And, there, and you know, Patrick, I've talked to enough sports medicine people and a couple of surgeons that do um, uh, labral surgery on uh, a lot of college pitchers, and uh, it's unlikely that there'll ever be a equivalent to Tommy John surgery for pitchers that have labrum injuries, and that's unfortunate. So we've made great progress with Tommy John surgery. Uh, they have made progress with uh, torn rotator cuffs to to a certain extent, uh, but the one injury with pitchers that um, we may not see a huge improvement in as far as being able to resurrect uh, a pitcher's career, and that's with a, uh, a torn labrum, and that's unfortunate. So... Uh, yeah, if you give a, you have a pitcher that gets a, uh, a torn ligament in their elbow uh, and they need Tommy John surgery, once they get through the recovery, uh, not every pitcher comes back from it, but uh, the recovery rate is well, uh, you know, well up there. I would think uh, the last numbers I've seen probably between seventy and eighty percent of pitchers able to come back and pitch uh, as effectively, if not better, uh, after the surgery. So that's good news. But uh, boy, when it involves the shoulder, especially the labrum and the uh, the capsule that goes around the shoulder, those are two surgeries that are real difficult to come back from, and that's unfortunate. Rick, uh, do I understand correctly you're converting your contributions at BaseballHQ.com rather than a series of regular weekly articles? It's going to be more like a blog? Yeah, we're going to do a blog. What we're trying to do is trying to give HQ readers a little bit of help in a different way rather than do the, the same column that I've done because I know some people do uh, daily transactions, but we have a lot of people still do weekly transactions. So what we're trying to do is focus on that big key injury uh, several times during the week or injury situations. And then on the weekend, the report that I'll be doing on the weekend will be designed to help people manage their rosters. So when a player goes on a DL, uh, the big name players will try to give you a good estimate on when they're going to be out. So you can determine whether you need to make a trade to fill a spot, or you can just try to grab somebody out of your, your free agent pool. Or maybe actually, if you're lucky enough to have somebody on a reserve roster, call them up for a couple of weeks and fill a void, uh, rather than just do a, a one week column and then not help people out, uh, with their roster moves. And then also, We'll take a look at a few players each week on when they're coming back. If we have a good a good feel for when they're going to come back off the disabled list, um, we can help people out that way. We'll give you advance notice when the players are coming back the way coming back that way. So we're going to try to uh, change things up that this year. After 15 years of doing that big column, we're going to try to break it up a little bit more and be a little more efficient with the news and hopefully help out uh, HQ read, uh, readers and subscribers this year by doing it that way. 
And before we sign off altogether, Rick, I know you were on the DL yourself uh, dealing with prostate cancer, and you would like to say a word or two to our listeners about that very important issue. Yeah, real quick, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I, I want to thank all of the Baseball HQ readers and subscribers, both on the forum and all the people that send emails. My wife and I and my family have been touched by by everybody that has sent notes into us and, and well wishes, and I really appreciate that. The, the uh, you know, I try to give tidbits on helping you with uh, everybody with their rosters with injuries, but this is probably the most important information I can ever give. Uh, a baseball HQ reader and subscriber, and it's this. Uh, when you get close to the age of 40 or at the age of 40, please make sure that you get your physical exam every year, and that includes getting a PSA blood test, no matter what you read in the paper or some people say. Get that test every year, and also make sure that you get your exam every year involved with the prostate, because if you can catch prostate cancer before it spreads outside the prostate, you can have surgery, and for all intents and purposes, you'll be cancer-free for the rest of your life, and you'll be in a good situation. In my situation, I got so busy, and I delayed on my uh, physical exam, and I went uh, roughly 19 months between two uh, physical exams and getting my prostate checked. And unfortunately for me, my prostate cancer spread outside of my prostate and into my left hip. And that's why I've had to battle and I've been on crutches for the last 14 months as I've recovered from that. And, uh, but it's already paid dividends because my brother has prostate cancer also. And we were able to, he was able to get his caught before it spread outside his prostate. So please do it for your family and your friends that care about you. Please get your prostate checked every single year and go in and get a physical exam, especially when you get close to the age of 40. And if you've got somebody in your family that has prostate cancer, um, that's even more important you to get checked out. But don't fall for the uh, uh, the people that think that uh, if you don't have any cancer in your family that you're not going to have it because I'm the first in my family to have cancer. So somebody has to be the first one, and it could be you. Prostate cancer is beatable, but you got to catch it before it gets outside the prostate. So um, that's my big advice to, to HQ readers. And, again, I want to thank everybody for the emails and the well wishes you sent. It's been uh, terrific, and it's really helped us through a difficult time. So uh, back on my feet. I'm in remission. I'm feeling good, and it's time to have uh, a great season of baseball this year. All right, Rick Wilton, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again during the year at least a couple times more. Okay, thanks, Patrick. Take care. Uh, that's Rick Wilton, Dr. HQ from BaseballHQ.com. Our regular weekly commentaries are coming up next. You are listening to Baseball HQ Radio. First of all, I want you to know that this honor that was brought upon me here could not have happened without the great work and the advice and guidance that I've had from three of the most wonderful people that I know. And if either of them weren't here today, I know that this day could not be complete. But they're all here, and I just hope you don't mind if I just pay a, a word of thanks and a tribute to my advisor and a wonderful friend, a man who I considered a father, Mr. Branch Rickey. And my mother, who taught me so much of the important things early in life, I appreciate no end. My mother, Mrs. Robinson. And, and, and lastly, ladies and gentlemen, my wife, who has been such a wonderful inspiration to me and the person who has 
guided and advised me throughout our entire marriage. I, I couldn't have been here today without her help. And then I... And sitting down, I must thank the baseball writers. I never thought at all that I would have this wonderful honor coming to me so early in my lifetime. And to have the writers to elect me on the first time is a thrill that I shall never forget. We have been up in cloud nine since the election. I don't ever think I'll come down. But I want to thank all of the people throughout this country who were just so wonderful during those trying days. I appreciate it no end. It's the greatest honor any person could have. And I only hope that I'll be able to live up to this tremendously fine honor. It's, it's something that I think those of us who are fortunate again must use in order to help others because it's such a tremendous honor that we should be able to go out and do things to help. I'm just grateful and I'm sorry it's taking so long, but I just wanted you to know I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with his Market Pulse, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler in the hole with his Master Notes, and leading off the Minor League Minute, BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about Reds' left-handed pitching prospect Tony Singrani. If we need further proof that last year's draft was exceptionally deep in pitching, the Cincinnati Reds' Tony Singrani is a great example. In other years, the 22-year-old Singrani might have been a late first-round pick, but in 2011, he lasted all the way until the end of the third round. An inconsistent starter most of his collegiate career at Rice, Singrani thrived when he became the team's closer his senior year and posted an ERA of 1.74 with 10 walks and 66 strikeouts and 12 saves in 57 innings. After being drafted, the Reds immediately moved Singrani back into a starting role where he put up even more impressive numbers, going 3-2 with a 1.75 ERA with 6 walks and 80 strikeouts in 51 in the third innings. 2012 has been more of the same so far. After five starts in the hitter-friendly Cal, the 6'4 lefty is 3-1 with a 0.32 ERA with 6 walks and 37 strikeouts. Singrani features a nice 92-95 mile-an-hour fastball, and he has a nice low three-quarters arm slot that creates good movement and some nice deception. He also has a decent changeup and a slider that has potential, but which he needs to spin more consistently. Singrani definitely has some work to do, but if he can prove that he can work deep into games and improve his off-speed stuff, he has the potential to be a solid mid-rotation lefty. It's probably too soon to roster Singrani even in deep NO-only leagues, but so far the results have been very impressive, and he's definitely worth keeping an eye on. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, and Colby Garropy have reports and updates on organizational moves, daily call-ups, and everything you need to keep tabs on those rising stars. Jeremy's most recent call-ups reports have looked at San Francisco third baseman Connor Gillespie, Boston third baseman Will Middlebrooks, Angels outfielder Mike Trout, Washington outfielder Bryce Harper, and first baseman Tyler Moore, and many others. So if you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now the Market Pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about focusing on the 85% of the season. Take your favorite NFL team. Would you give up on them after two games? Would you give up on a game against their heated rival after 10 minutes of the first quarter? 
Well, that's where we stand right now in fantasy baseball, only 15% into the season. Because we only have these 25, 26 games to look at, those stats are magnified in our minds. There's going to be at least six more of these 25-game stints throughout the season. But we are over-magnifying those first set of games. It happens every year, and it happens to the best veteran players. I've heard veterans say, Albert Pujols is going to be a waste even if he returns to form the rest of the season and hits 330 home runs all the way. Well, if he does that, yes, he's disappointing, but he's still within the realm of statistical accuracy, the natural variance each player has. In one league, I drafted some replacement-level pitchers. It's a shallower mixed league. Guys like Kyle Loesch and Jake Westbrook, Ted Lilly, and I plan on streaming them each week with two-start pitchers. But it's so hard for me to let go of them because they're off to a pretty good start. I keep them on my roster, and I refuse that temptation to stream them with other guys who are really just about as good, but that early season performance keeps them on my roster week after week. I know better. I know what the pool is. I know what the production I'm going to get. But even though I know better mentally... I still hang on because they're off to this great start. These are veteran pitchers. They're not going to come through with some Cy Young year all of a sudden. I know exactly what I'm going to get at the end of the year, but I'm deviating from my plan no matter how much I try not to because they're off to a hot start. Don't limit yourself. Don't handicap yourself after 15% of the season is over. There's so much yet to go that you've got to keep open and understand the real probabilities are going to happen throughout the rest of the season instead of focusing on these games. As we talked about last week, look forward, not backward, in projecting your team's future. With the Market Pulse for Baseball HQ, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about trading Albert Pujols. In this week's chat at usatoday.com, I was asked the following question. Do you see any signs that Albert Pujols owners should take into consideration from a deteriorating skills perspective? Would you be offering him in deals if you can get Adrian Gonzalez, Prince Fielder, guys like that in return? Or keep the faith that once he gets comfortable in his new surroundings, the things will be back to normal? I have begun to hear murmurings about trading Albert Pujols over the last week or so. I suppose that, that with a month of stats in the books, fantasy leaguers are starting to consider the possibility that this slump could last. Naturally, there are two schools of thought. First is common wisdom that states that you should sit tight with a player like Pujols, someone who has shown a long-term, consistent track record of high-level performance. He's had long home run droughts before. He's bounced back from slumps before. If there is anyone you need to have patience with, it's Albert. The second school of thought says, <laughs> that's exactly what we were saying this time last year with, wait for it, Adam Dunn. Now, now, pool holes is no Dunn, but there was some skills deterioration, and he is in a completely new environment, and... His team is struggling without his production. Hey, wait a minute, maybe this is done. 
or put any name on it. Let's suppose this is some unnamed player who had a long-term track record and is suddenly slumping. Would we be more open to considering that this slump is for real? Probably because the name Pujols has its own mystique. So I say yes. If you can get an Adrian Gonzalez or Prince Fielder, players who are basically in the same class of production as Pujols and at least showing some life, I'd make that deal. I would take the proven numbers rather than wait for what might be slightly better numbers but higher risk. Because even during the season, you have to weigh heavily on risk when assessing top-level talent. One more thing, different topic, just a quick personal note. While cleaning out my basement, I uncovered a hidden stash of old, very old, baseball forecasters. These books go back to the very beginning, 1986. I'll keep a few, but have really no use for most of them, and I know many of you are collectors. So I am offering them up at ronshandler.com. That's my personal site. I have about 20, maybe 30 copies of most editions, and will send them to you for pretty much just the price of shipping. I have a very small number of four editions, 1986, 87, 88, and 1998. They will be auctioned off in a few weeks as part of a complete set of all 26 forecasters, plus a few other books we've published, like Forecasting Pitching Careers and the Rotisserie Handbook. All details are at ronchandler.com. Orders can be placed using PayPal. And if you want any of the books autographed, just make a note of that when you place the order. Enjoy. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column appears every Friday at BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about your 2012 breakouts for real. Ron has a weekly chat every Wednesday morning at 11 Eastern at usatoday.com, and he discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. And, of course, Ron also has his master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of May the 5th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 16 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball season. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and rate our show. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with Rick Wilton, Dr. HQ from BaseballHQ.com. It's always good to talk with Rick, and with injuries so important in the modern fantasy environment, always good to catch up on the latest news. I also want to thank our regular lineup from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news analysts were Harold Nichols and columnist Matt Beagle, also our Market Pulse commentator this week. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon. And our Master Notes commentator, as always, was BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. We have some really great features again this week at BaseballHQ.com. Ray Murphy's speculator column asks, what if we're wrong? This time about our all-avoid team from earlier this year. Matt Cedarholm's Market Pulse column looks at the week's drops and ads. And Doug Dennis' bullpen's column, past the Maylocks, about bullpen situations after the first month. Plus, we have all our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, buyer's guides, and more. I'm Patrick Davitt. My batting buyer's guide appears every Tuesday. This week, I wrote about the battery valuation tools at BaseballHQ.com. And in the meantime, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. 
Also, check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed, at Baseball HQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.